The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Welcome to Museum Life. This is Carol Bossert. Thank you for tuning in today. I have a great show uh, lined up from, for you. Uh, many of... Uh, my listeners may remember that I had Frank Vagnoni on the show on March 13th talking about uh, the, the book that he had co- was co-writing uh, called The Anarchist Guide to Historic Houses. And I'm sure many of you are also following Frank and uh, some of the topics that are being covered on his LinkedIn page, uh, also called The Anarchist Guide to Historic Houses. Well, you know, a lot has happened since March of this year. We have had issues with the Confederate flag in South Carolina that has brought uh, a lot of discussion about Confederate uh, statuaries uh, here in Washington and, frankly, here in my little town of Rockville, Maryland. Uh, We have actually, the uh, city founders, uh, fathers and mothers, have actually removed a, a statue of a Confederate soldier, uh, changing uh, sort of the history of Maryland. There's also been an awful lot of discussion about the whitewashing of slavery, including a, an article in the Washington Post. Uh, there are people uh, in New Orleans that are considering um, uh, taking down certain monuments and statues. And so historic homes, historic houses are right in the middle of this discussion. And so I thought it was really appropriate for to bring Frank back on the show. And today, not only do we have Frank, but we have uh, Deborah Ryan, uh, who is his co-author on the book uh, with us today. And I am sure that this is going to be a rollicking good time had by all, uh, as I've Frank and Deb do complete each other's sentences and have are a force of nature when it comes to shaking up uh, historic houses so that they can better serve their communities. Before I introduce um, uh, my two guests, you will remember that Frank serves as the executive director of the Historic House Trust of New York City. And uh, Deb, Deborah Ryan, is a practicing landscape architect and an associate 
Associate Professor of Architecture and Urban Design at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. I'll also mention that the book, the long-awaited book, The Anarchist Guide to Historic Houses, which is published by Left Coast Press, will be available uh, the end of uh, September for softcover and uh, the be mid-October for hardcover. You can pre-order it now, and I will remind you again how you can do that later in the show. But for now, Frank and Deb, thank you very much for being on the show today. Oh, our pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Deb, as uh, I do with all of my guests, uh, and Frank uh, did this when I interviewed him on March 13th, I want to give you an opportunity to share a little bit more about your career trajectory, and particularly those um, you know, moments of aha that, uh, that brought you to uh, where you are today working with Frank on this wonderful book. Well, as you said, I'm a landscape architect urban and urban designer and also a feminist, and so that will play into some of the discussion perhaps later on. But really my specialty through the years has been about increasing civic engagement in the community planning process and then making places that are in, in cities to be much more vital and interesting. Um, so when, when um, Frank began sharing with me the problems um, that historic houses were facing relative to declining attendance, then I thought that it might be worthwhile to apply some of the uh, concepts that we have relative to urban design and making cities better and to find a way to, 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 to apply that to historic house, uh, historic house museums. But perhaps even more importantly is to look at the houses as a component in the urban fabric and to bring those houses um, more into the urban fold. That's very interesting. Uh, so could you explain a little bit more about what you mean by uh, bringing them into the, the uh, fabric of the community? Oh, sure. And so, you know, historic house museums tend to be inward-focusing, inward-focusing particularly on their collections. And what we have suggested is that the houses need to turn themselves inside out. So rather than expecting people to come to them, they need to make the community aware of who they are and make the community feel welcome. And then to find ways, uh, um, uh, in the book we, we um, write about uh, quite a few ways to try to bring in people who have been previously disinter- uh, un previously uninterested into the house and to find, find common ground with the existing neighborhood. Uh, I know, uh, Frank, when you were on the show last time, you uh, shared a wonderful story about how uh, you you and your daughter, but particularly your daughter, was sort of shut down from asking questions and, and a historic home and that that all that sort of galvanized you to see that you know things things had to have a uh, there had to be a better way yeah that's exactly right and and you know it was amazing to me at the time if you recall that here was someone who who has been running historic house museums for quite some time and he and his daughter are, are in, during their vacation going out of their way to visit house museums and we still found them really lacking in experience, really lacking in something um, positive that we could take away. And it was really at that point 
that, um, and that's if you recall, she was driving the car and I just started writing in my notebook about the anarchist guide, kind of joking about what all these things were and why they were causing um, so much frustration in me. And that's really where it started. Well, and as you said before, uh, their historic houses are, there are more of them than probably any other type of museum, judging by the uh, list uh, put together by the American Alliance of Museums and also the uh, uh, American Alliance of State and Local History. Uh, but at the same time, they are probably the uh, poorest uh, funded overall. Uh, you know, we have Monticello and Mount Vernon, and and then we have the local house, you know, down the street. Uh, and right. their their audiences are um, falling off precipitously. And I would think that that's something, Frank, that you've become very involved with, uh, and and is of great concern in your job in New York. Well, absolutely, and not just in New York, but when I was running um, the Philadelphia Society for the Preservation of Landmarks, we had a handful of historic houses we were running there. And, you know, this, this issue of attendance is really just one small component to what Deb and I talk about in the book. Um, you know, having lower numbers of people coming into a historic house museum is one issue, one issue that should be addressed in some way. But a much larger issue is one that Deb and I constantly talk about and deal with specifically in the book, and that is that the experience when one actually goes to a house museum is something that you want to tell your friends to go to that house museum. You want to bring your family back to the house museum more than just twice in a lifetime. And so, so we, we think the notion of, of talking just about attendance as a kind of separate, uh, quantifiable thing is really, as we like to say, a kind of smokescreen to the real issue, which is if the experiences were somehow more engaging and compelling, and we'll talk more about pulling in a larger, um, uh, a wider variety of, of narrative, um, that, that that attendance will just naturally increase because you will be addressing the needs of a larger constituency. And so from, a, from an urban design perspective, um, what this really means and that w- what, what we've been trying to apply to historic houses is this notion of placemaking and that place, you know, places hold meaning for people and there are, are activities that occur within places. And so they're not just like a biometric space. They're actually a place where you can do things and watch people and be involved and, you know, if house museums are struggling, maybe that's because they don't have as much richness as they might have in terms of thinking of their house as a place and not just as a, a container for collections. And, Carol, if, if, I, if I may add something here, you know, really one of the, the, the most um, predominant conversations right now, and in many ways an argument, is that one side says there are too many house museums, and the other side is saying, no, there's not too many house museums. Um, the funding just needs to be spread out between them more evenly. You know, and Deb and I have often just thought that, that this really doesn't address a, a more core issue. And again, I go back to experience. Um, the core issue is not that there are too many house museums, but perhaps the house museums are sharing a similar experience. We call it the kind of beige experience. 
And that if the house museums were able to engage um, new constituents and communities at a level and in ways that would be new, um, that, that all of these house museums could somehow fit into a larger constellation of culturals. So, so Deb and I really have, have not engaged in this conversation about whether there are too many house museums. It's more that we would like the house museums to really become kind of special jewels in this larger constellation of um, culturals. But but let me also say, though, is while we haven't engaged in that conversation, we have engaged in the notion when people say to us, well, we, could, we would do that if we only had more money, if we only had more grants, mm-hmm. as if, you know, somehow that would solve all their problems. And what we have suggested is a whole series of exercises and a um, series of ideas that cost almost almost nothing to implement. And, you know, part of that comes from being a university professor because we never have enough money to do anything or, you know, working for governments that never have enough money to do anything. And so we're really used to doing things on a dime. And so, you know, we we, we just want to suggest some ideas that, you know, people don't have to think about for years or, or, you know, get massive grants to undertake, but something they could actually do tomorrow or next week or next month. Are you able to, with, you know, I, I certainly don't want you to give anything away because I want everybody to buy your book. Um, uh, and seriously, I think it will be a, a wonderful uh, addition to our uh, museum uh, education repertoire. But can you give away one example? One example? Well, well I, w- I will Go say ahead, Frank. That, that one of the, one of the biggest places that, that, um, that Deb and I have landed is that um, is that it's it's not really a kind of task that can't be done because you don't have enough money. It really is at a kind of philosophic level. Most of these things, as Deb is suggesting, are simple acts. Whether they are um, embedding into your job description for all your staff that they're out in the community for one full day. Um, that you actually take things out into the community um, and you go into places that you wouldn't normally be seen as a historic house museum. You know, these are not things that cost a lot of money, but what does cost a lot of kind of intellectual capital is that the board and the leaders and the staff all need to philosophically um, embrace a kind of new way of thinking. And that's, that's really what the book is about. Yeah, because, you know, part of this, and this is part of, of um, you know, basic urban design is that you cannot do anything on your own because the problems are so big and complex. And so you have to develop partnerships. And um, so we write about how to develop partnerships, where to start, why you might want to do it, and then some case studies of partnerships that have been built, um, many of which are through Frank's work um, with the Historic House Trust, to talk about how those partnerships really can be mutually beneficial. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's pretty simple to, to suggest that partnerships are important, but it's not something that historic house museums have necessarily sought out. That's interesting. It seems to me that uh, also there, there are many historic houses that, of course, they were preserved because they were of the wealthy or the powerful or the influential. 
And uh, do you find that there perhaps is either a sense of wanting to keep that exclusiveness, that, that exclusive audience, uh, or is it almost an embarrassment that these places are not typical of uh, any or relevant of a certain uh, to the community that, that uh, lives around them today? Well, this is sort of where my feminist perspective comes in to speak about valuing the undervalued or giving voice to the voiceless, is that, um, yes, the vast majority of historic houses have focused on um, heroic white men and not very much on the family that supported him or the slaves or the servants who supported him and his career. And that, that of course, arose out of a certain time and place, but here we are now, and if we want to expand the audience, then what we have to really think about is who we're trying to address. How do we become relevant? And if we're only talking about old white men, old dead white men, then it may be particularly difficult to be relevant and to be interesting to the surrounding community. Yeah, and Carol, you you remember that we spoke about that around 3% of all nationally designated historic sites have anything directly to do with with, uh, minority uh, populations. Um, And I have to say that I was really... I was really overwhelmed recently in, in June when the New York Landmarks, Conservant, uh, Landmarks Commission um, voted to landmark the Stonewall um, Bar as a, one of its first, um, or its first LGBT um, site. And in the discussion, one of the um, commissioners actually cited the Anarchist Guide to Historic House Museums as providing uh, uh, an understanding that a site may be more important um, than what it appears on the surface, and that was really that was really amazing for Deb and I. Oh, that's wonderful! Congratulations. Well, I'm going to break us here before we launch into another set of subjects. Uh, we will be right back uh, in a few moments, so please stay tuned uh, to this wonderful discussion about uh, the role of historic homes in our society today with Frank Vagnoni and uh, Deb Ryan. We will be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert. Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content, and at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, 
boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn or call her directly at 240-432-7712. The schizophrenia community faces tough challenges every day. The community includes individuals living with schizophrenia, their partners, parents, children, siblings, friends, neighbors, co-workers, and also their providers of health care and social services. To hear Dr. Gordon Atherley introduce members of the schizophrenia community who are sharing their experiences, tune in to Schizophrenia Community Radio every week, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life, and today uh, we're talking with Frank Fagnoni and Deb Ryan, the authors of The Anarchist Guide to Historic Houses, which will be available in just a few short weeks, published by Left Coast Press. Uh, And I can tell already because of the uh, wonderful things that are going on and on the LinkedIn page, and also as Frank was just saying, uh, he was gratified to learn that uh, a site was being preserved in New York uh, because of understanding that sites don't have to be uh, beautiful and glossy and full of gold gilt to have an an importance in preserving what it means to be an American. Uh, So, uh, with that, I'd like you both to take uh, some time and talk about, uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, one of the reasons that I really wanted you both back on the show, and and um, I had also had Teresa Bergman on this summer, who is the author of Exhibiting Patriotism, and really understanding that many of uh, the the uh, interpretation of our historic homes, our historic properties, and how that changes over time really helps us understand uh, how our identity as uh, Americans um, uh, living in this country uh, really uh, really changes uh, and how our, our sense of who we are and who is in power changes. So I'd like you to both talk a little bit about uh, some of the fallout that you has, have observed over the you know, this summer with the uh, decision to remove the Confederate flag and how the Confederate flag has become sort of a lightning rod in certain parts of the country as uh, questioning uh, where it should be shown, how it should be shown, and also some of the fallout of then looking even at how we represent uh, Confederate uh, soldiers and, and uh 
uh, leaders and and to the point of even wondering if we should uh, rename some of our our schools that are named after uh, Confederate uh, generals. So, um, you know, either one of you can start. I know the other will just chime right in. Uh, what are what are your thoughts on that now within the framework of of your uh, work? You know, I was born in Columbus, Ohio. We moved around a handful of times. I ended up in Charlotte, North Carolina for a good bit of my young adult life, moved back up north and then went back down south, and now I'm back up north. So it really is interesting. Um, I've always felt um, kind of as an anthropologist looking at both sides of this discussion, and it probably helped with our book, Deb. I don't know, but but that that I did kind of feel capable of, of being pulled out of the discussion and kind of just seeing that what we needed, and Deb and I agreed on this, what we needed was just communication. We needed more people talking about more things. Um, and so I felt very comfortable with that, given the background of being this kind of in-between northerner and southerner. Yeah, and, and um, I'm, I'm speaking to you from Charlotte, North Carolina, so... Um, I am I am in the midst of of uh, these conversations, but I too have sort of that life that Frank does uh, did and does is that um, I left the South to go get educated and then and then came back. So it is sort of interesting to be able to have the perspective from different parts of the country. And you know what I really want to say about this because I'm not so sure if we're actually qualified to speak about. Um, the Confederate flag or not, but well, I think that what our perspective is is that it's really not a question of one or the other, but rather why not both? In that, um, we speak in the book about expanding the narrative, and I already spoke a little bit about that, but but really we want to hear as many voices as possible so that perhaps the houses can be a place of conversation that the houses don't necessarily have to take a view or a perspective but for them to be silent on an issue is perhaps fairly damaging you know just to to suggest that every perspective is unique depending on the person who's seen and feeling and experiencing it, that it, if, it, if, each, if each perspective is unique, then we need to allow for those perspectives and to allow for that sort of conversation to occur. And I will say that, that you know, we've, we've traveled around um, both individually as well collectively, and we visited a lot of historic house museums, and, and they have ranged from, kind of large plantation houses where not a word about slavery was mentioned to others where slavery um, was mentioned extensively with new recreated um, slave um, dwellings um, and everywhere in between. And then I, and then I also, when, when I was in Alabama, actually, I, I specifically wanted to visit sites to see how they were interpreting slavery and I went to the tourism bureau in this particular town, and, and the, the, the head tourism um, agent said that she had never been to any of these plantation historic sites, nor did she ever want to, and that she knew nothing about them, and she could not suggest the first thing as a tourist of what to do to go and visit one of them. And then here's someone whose job it was, to make, make these sites 
um, a kind of integrated part of tourism for Alabama. Now, I don't hold this against this woman. Um, she made it very clear that the, that the sites that were surrounding this particular city did not address slavery. And as far as she was concerned, they were not um, addressing her constituency or her background. And that was really significant for me to hear um, that there was just this absolute silence for someone that they wouldn't even visit a site. Yeah, and and, um, there's been that story about the four Confederate memorials in New Orleans and whether or not they should be removed. I don't know what's happened in September. I was only sort of up to speed in, in August. But but I think that one one of the things that might be of value is that Frank and I talk about the importance of simultaneity in that um, um, we believe that not only can multiple perspectives be presented at the same time, but um, many different ideas and many different er- um, errors can overlap and just enrich the experience. So what we argue for is complexity in terms of the narrative, in terms of the conversation, the ideas presented, rather than trying to simplify it. Because it seems like when we simplify it, then that's when we get ourselves into trouble. And that's absolutely right. And, and Carol, this is, this is really one of the fundamental things that, that Deb and I really tried to address, and that is that kind of the professionalism of the Historic House Museum and its narrative is that you do simplify it, because we've always heard, well, they only have a half an hour, 45 minutes. You just can't feed them all this information. We really have to have to um, kind of cut away a lot of the details. Well, you know, a lot of research that Deb and I have been looking at says the exact opposite, that if someone goes to a museum and that there are multiple images and multiple bits of information shared at the same time within the same visual field, that in fact they gain a deeper understanding of the greater picture. And that really was, was a kind of core to where Deb and I um, started with the, with the notion of the narratives. It, it's also tied in with, with for instance, Edward um, Hufty when he talks about the visual um, presentation of concepts and ideas and statistics. And he says the same thing. It's actually, um, it goes against um, a kind of positive understanding of information to reduce it. It's, it's in a way you produce a kind of bias through your reduction. And he says that you actually should embrace the complexity of information and allow people to make their own judgments. And that's not something that happens a lot in historic house museums. Yes, well, I, I, uh, I think, uh, unfortunately, many of us, um, and I love historic house museums, uh, and I drag my family to them wherever we are. Uh, but, but I, unfortunately, I think that uh, the mold of having, you know, bringing a group in and then touring them through the house uh, by whether it's a costumed interpreter or a, a, a docent of, of, of per se is, uh, is often the norm. And they do only have 35 minutes or, or 40 minutes and, and, and you're standing up. So it's not necessarily the time that, you know, I mean, I, I love Edward Tufty and I've gone to his lectures. Uh, I wouldn't want to do that standing up for 40, uh, 45 minutes. So, so I, you know, I, I, I think we also um, have, have to address the, 
the model uh, that has has been uh, uh, perpetuated for probably you know maybe some good reasons, but maybe now they they need to be evaluated a little bit more. And some of it I know in working with some of my clients, the concern is that you know too many people walking through the house are going to you know bring in dust and dirt and um, harm all of those beautiful artifacts and all of those pretty little rooms that have uh, have a rope between. Them them and uh, between the room and and the guest. So, I mean, Debbie, well, we're talking about some simple things that people can do uh, that you know don't cost a lot of money. How are you advising uh, uh, these museums to think outside of their norm? Well, it is a balance between collection management and preservation and visitor experience, and. Um, we're offering a perspective that may be weighted a little bit more visitor experience. But, you know, Frank's really been in the trenches in terms of finding a balance here. And so, Frank, you should jump in on this one. All right. Well, what I will say is that from my decades of experience at house museums, and it normally will come down to, is there water getting into the house? And if there's water getting into the house, then take care of it. Then the other side of it is, is the visitor experience so horrible that someone will not want to come back? Then you need to take care of it. And so there's really this, these two extremes. I mean, usually what happens is that boards and staff rely on, well, our primary goal is to preserve the house. Well, stopping the water and dealing with life safety issues is one thing. But stopping the water all the way to the end of, putting up new wallpaper every five years, which is reproduction and costs, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, there's, there's somewhere in between that where stabilized preservation, um, and it's not quite restoration, uh, that, that it really does start to speak about a kind of nuanced approach to preservation that most house museums don't have. Most house museums think that they want to be Monticello or Mount Vernon, and that's the way they approach it. Well, it seems to me as well as as that, uh, and and we shouldn't, in all fairness, should not just single out historic houses as having the uh, the uh, the feeling that uh, uh, old librarians used to have, which is you know the books could be preserved much better if people didn't come in and use them because they wouldn't get them so dirty and fingerprinted, and 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 I so I do appreciate that. Uh, uh, that that challenge. I mean, museums are meant, uh, and museum boards in particular, are charged with preserving things in perpetuity, and that sometimes means preserving them because you don't know what's coming around the corner, and and taking those risks can probably seem to boards to be a you know little like a, uh, walking off a cliff. Well, yeah, and, and one of the things that might suggest sort of a, 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 a tweaking of thinking and, and not something that would cost any more. You know, one of the things we found out, and perhaps this is due to uh, the plethora of home shows these days, home improvement shows, that people are really intrigued with the preservation process. And yet, most of the time, um, historic house museums hide it, like that room's not done. You can't go in there. You can't see it. As if somehow the very act of preservation is magical. 
And, you know, just by opening up, and we have some examples of the book where people have actually opened up the preservation process and let people see all the warts of the house and how difficult it is to maintain it, how people have really, really enjoyed that and come back numerous times to watch the process of preservation. Which is a really unusual thing for a house museum to adopt because um, most of the time what you'll see is a, is a sign taped on the door of a room that says, this, this room is under restoration. And, and invariably, everyone wants to go into that room. Those denied spaces we found were the very places that most people wanted to experience. And so we talk a lot about that in the shelter section of the book. Um, that, that that kind of embracing of the messy, the fuzzy, um, the, the kind of non-pure aspects of the house museum itself are really some of the most compelling for the visitors. Or just allow, allow visitors to sort of peek behind the curtain. I mean, somehow, so many of us have that desire to kind of find out what we're not really supposed to know. And, and it, it, it is something that we think that historic house museums could build upon rather than deny is happening. Very, very good suggestions. Yes, Frank? I was just going to say we have one example, which is uh, Stratford Hall. Um, when we were there, they were in the middle of um, re-restoring uh, their dining room, and so all the plaster had been taken down, all the woodworking, of course, and so they had the exposed walls, and you were able to see all of the kind of many ages of restoration, renovation in Stratford Hall. And, um, and what we found out was really interesting, that people didn't want to leave that room. In fact, they became very animate. They asked a lot of questions, and were deeply engaged in not only the act of preservation, but how it related to the narrative and the inhabitants of the house. This was a really um, kind of pivotal point for Deb and I, because what we realized was this was not just someone interested in architecture. These were people interested in the inhabitants of the house and how that interacted with the architecture, with those changes. This was a really significant thing for, for us to understand, and it became part of the book. Yeah, and you know, um, historic house museums will also argue um, that they want to be authentic. And um, it seems the exact opposite of authenticity to suggest to the public that this ongoing maintenance doesn't have to take place. I mean, that's part of the narrative. It's part of the reality of the aging of the structure. Interesting. Very interesting. I'm going to break us now. Um, and when we come back, more with Frank and Deb on historic houses and uh, uh, preservation and narrative. Uh, I wanted to mention again that their book, The Anarchist Guide to Historic Houses, is going to be published. Uh, the paperback, uh, according to Amazon, is going to be available uh, the end of September this month, and the hard copy will be available in early October, it's published by Left Coast Press. Uh, it's not very expensive, and I think it's something that we all need to have on our bookshelves. So I am looking forward. To, oh, and you can pre-order it. I've pre-ordered it. Uh, so be the first one on your block to have this wonderful book. Uh, we will be back in a moment with Frank and Deb. And this is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Stay tuned. 
Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content, and at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com, reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn, or call her directly at 240-432-7712. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, and as you know, I am here with Frank Bagnoni and Deb Ryan, the authors of the historic, the Anarchist Guide to Historic Houses. And uh, right before we took our break, Frank and Deb were talking about uh, both the challenges and opportunities in sharing the, uh, the behind the scenes, particularly the issues of preservation and how one preserves a home uh, and uh, uh, to the general public and how quite fascinating it is. And Deb, I'd like to go back to something that you had said earlier about the, uh, the value and the importance of, of expanding the narrative to include not only, you know, the rich white guy who, uh, you know, did the great thing that's in the history books, but how he did it and the network that he did it in that included his family and his servants and, and in certain periods of time, slaves and, and his associates and sort of, of, filling them out. And, you know, as you were talking, it reminds me of, um, and I'll admit, admit this on the air only to you, so keep it a secret, that one of my guilty pleasures last uh, last year was watching the uh, television series Empire about essentially a family uh, that was involved in, in building a record business and, and how fascinated we are with sort of the infighting and the families and all those things. And it seems to me that I would like to know that about the Washingtons and the Jeffersons and the and the Fords and the uh, the Edisons of the world, uh, you know, to really know what their lives were like. But one of the um, comments that I've gotten back from some of my my colleagues is that, well, you know, gee, those would be really nice stories to tell, but you know, we just don't have the research. 
Mm-hmm. What I would suggest about this is that all history at some level is conjectural. We write at length in the book about the science and the art of history and um, how you'll never know enough and that at any level we take some educated guesses just because of our knowledge of context. Um, so, so very rarely do, do very rarely do historic house museums um, are they able to factually document the entire narrative. But we actually sort of take a whole different perspective on this, and we have a chapter that we call, that we call "Embrace uh, Rumor and Gossip." Because we are sort of interested in the foibles of people. You know, I mean, perhaps that's why some historic houses don't really resonate. Um, because if you go and you learn about all the great qualities of a great man, it's kind of hard to relate to that. Um, and so if we learn about their foibles or their mistakes or their private lives, then we can relate to them and, um, and it becomes a little bit more rev- uh, relevant. So there are quite a few houses that him, have embraced this notion of rumor, gossip, and conjecture. And by presenting it as such, then it makes the narrative quite a bit more entertaining. But, but not only, but I agree completely, of course, with Deb, not only entertaining, but what it does allow when you loosen up, and I think, uh, Deb, it was, a, it was a quote from um, Stilgo, I think, that, that said that a lot more people would be interested in history mm-hmm. if, if, the, if, if history would be widened. If the, if the knowledge of history, or, and, and that's absolutely true. You know, what Deb and I are, are asking for is a kind of loosening, a widening of what people are okay with presenting. You know, Deb and I are not advocating for lying about something in history. What we are advocating for is that you openly acknowledge the fuzzy edges of these houses. Because actually the fuzzy edges are what are most intriguing. Those are the things that get snipped away. And so, and I think there was a, uh, there's another term that Deb and I um, use, which is fragile histories. And that is there are, these, there are these pieces, the edge of narratives that are so fragile that most people won't touch them. They won't go near them. And Deb and I say, no, that's, that's exactly the wrong um, thing to do. You need to embrace those. You need to openly acknowledge the fragility, openly acknowledge the conjecture, gossip, and rumor, but you must include those. And in including those, there's just this myriad of constituencies and community-based um, uh, issues and ideas that you can start to deal with. And that's why it's, it's, it's not um, a kind of good place to allow a board or a staff, um, and I've been there myself, so I'm talking about myself, and I've said this, You know, well, we don't have the research to support that. Okay, well, all you have to do is say that we don't have the research to support this, but some people suggest, and you go on to give it. You know, it reminds me, this this discussion reminds me a lot of, uh, I had Nancy Proctor on the show, uh, who has been very involved in 
looking at how the digital uh, our digital world is affecting museums and and you know we're using that word broadly to include include historic houses and that we are now it used to be that a historic house might own a certain narrative about the family and the people that lived there and their furnishings because there wasn't anything else. And, and maybe there was a book in some library somewhere, but nobody knew where to find it. And so they really controlled the, the story. But now, of course, with uh, so much information and, of course, misinformation that is available uh, on your phone and on your watch and on your your uh, smart tablet, uh, I think historic houses, as well as all other museums, need to realize that they're not controlling that narrative, whether they talk about the subject or not. Is That's that an exactly issue? right. Well, let me let me let, let me just add to that and say, you know, uh, Frank mentioned um, John Stilgo, and when I was in graduate school, John Stilgo was my mentor. And what what I learned from him was um, was the importance of everyday history, the history of my grandmothers, um, the the history of my great grandmothers, and and how their everyday lives were important, and not only important but not that dissimilar from mine. And I think that when we speak about historic houses, one of the things we like to see celebrated is, um, we call it the detrius of habitation, but really it's the signs of everyday life. And we may not have factual information about some of those everyday acts, but we've got some really good ideas about what those probably were. And those are relatable experiences. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 you know, that goes all the way from a narrative itself, and as I was saying, those fragile edges to a narrative that we may not have full history on, um, but it goes all the way to the um, outfitting of a room, the experience of walking through it, sitting on furniture, you know, the, the, whole, the whole kind of complex experience of a house museum really both in physical as well as intellectual levels, should take on those kind of rough, fragile edges. Yeah, and I would say this. As much of our work um, and most of our initial, and, and much of our initial research was actually done in conjunction with um, students, whether they be here at UNC Charlotte or at Columbia or at Cooperstown's graduate program um, or other universities that we've had the honor of working with. And... And it's interesting some of the things that that they have suggested to us that we may not have seen. Like for instance, we've had students who have suggested that part of the problem with historic houses is their silence. And that's yeah, and that's really important when you think of the number of people who lived in those houses. And so we suggested um, you know, to insert um, music and perhaps conversations that aren't seen but could be overheard, the sound of um, cooking from the kitchen, perhaps the sound of a baby crying. I mean, there's so many sounds can be so easily and inexpensively inserted and yet would help people understand what the house was like when people were living in it. And, and you know, it, it goes back 
Carol, when we were talking about the kind of complexity, the overlapping of different things, you know, we believe, Deb and I believe, that we can hear sounds of a baby crying um, in the background. We can also be listening to a tour guide or flipping through um, papers found in a drawer to start to formulate our own narrative that would be far more interesting and compelling and perhaps even kind of deeper understanding is derived by, by the complexity of all of those um, sensory perceptions occurring at the same time. And that's really one of the things that we push for. It sounds to me that that uh, underlying all of this, and Frank, you and I have talked about this this before, and, and both of you have mentioned it, is it is a respect for audience. I mean, no one... Mm-hmm. Yeah, other, no one other than perhaps a recalcitrant school child is going to the property uh, without making a conscious decision to do so. Uh, so, so there's a reason that they they want to go there, and uh, a reason and an openness that I think sometimes we don't. Uh, that sort of gets lost in the shuffle. That respect for audience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, that's when, we, when we really got into this concept, we realized that we were inverting what was the standard kind of uh, operations for a house museum. And they normally start with preserving the building, preserving the collection, making sure that your narrative is historically accurate. And then you finally get down to the bottom, and it's about the visitor experience. And by the time you get down there, all the other things have so usurped not only your energy, but also the, the potential for creativity. And so Deb and I really just inverted it. At this point, we're most interested in the experience. Now, of course, so what like I said, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, so, so what we call that is poetic preservation. And I was thinking about this the other night when my husband Mike and I went to a movie, and afterwards he said, so did you like it? And I said, well, you know, I thought it was well-made. I thought it was a good story. And I said, but, you know, it didn't move me. I'm not, I'm not walking away from this movie thinking, wow, that was really something I want to think about some more or that I had felt anything. And I think that, you know, that's what we're talking about in historic houses is that did it leave us with anything? Did we feel something? Did we relate to something? And, Deb, you know what, what it reminds me of, and it's something that stuck with me, is um, Carol, Deb and I were working, uh, teaching, co-teaching a class, and one of the sites that um, a student chose is Corners Folly in, um, what's the town in North Carolina, Deb? In Cartersville, Cartersville, North Cartersville. Carolina. And um, I have to say that walking through, this, walking through this house was one of the most delightful, fun mm-hmm. experiences that Deb and I had in any house museum. And, in fact, we highlighted it in an article that we wrote about um, kind of evaluating a new, new methodology for evaluating house museums that's published in the um, Public Historian. And that house museum, there was something just extraordinarily special about it, which incidentally wasn't preserved fully or restored fully, and that you were able to kind of garner the narrative as you walked through the house on your own. Um, it was really fascinating, wouldn't you say, Deb? Oh, yeah, and, and and it was such a pleasure to be introduced to it um, through one of our students. 
um, which, you know, happened a lot in terms of we've been working on this research for, what, four or five years now. Yeah. And, and, our, yeah, and our, our students introduced us to so many ideas and, and to so many houses that we were unaware of, and this was a really special treat. In fact, I remember when the student went to this house and um, did the evaluation matrix because that's part of um, what the Anarchist Guide offers is a way to determine where you're – you might be struggling um, with your house museum, and um, he did the evaluation of the site. And he and he scored it way too high, and we thought, ah, it can't be this good. And then we went back and we thought, damn, it is that good. <laughs> I know. We, we actually, yeah. we, I went out to Charlotte um, so that we get to get Deb and I got in the car and we drove to this house. Because we really wanted to see if it really did hit on so many of our ideas. And sure enough, um, the ED was there. She was wonderful. She actually um, worked with us on the Public Historian article. And as far as I'm concerned, it really was this kind of experience that stands out in my research with House Museum. Well, I am so glad that you shared that example because I think it does proof, uh, you know, it's proof of your thesis that uh, sometimes the simplest things of just letting people go through a house and discover some things on their own, perhaps their reproductions that they can touch or or uh, things that they can uh, can look at is uh, is that is the the memorable experience. Well. This has been an absolutely fabulous conversation. I can can see that the two of you had as much fun writing the book uh, as we've as as uh, we have enjoyed it, and I'm sure that the proof will be in the uh, the product. I know that just with the publication of the book does not mean uh, that the uh, LinkedIn site and the Facebook sites are going away, and so I think uh, that we can look forward to much more discussions from the two of you and uh, hopefully uh, shifting the paradigm for these very important uh, uh, structures uh, as part of our, um, our collective historic heritage. So thank you both so much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you for the invitation, Carol. And uh, buy the book. Uh, we will be back next week with a uh, with another episode of Museum Life. Of course, I always love to hear from you, so please continue to uh, send me emails at carol.bossard at verizon.net or tweet at at MuseWrite. Uh, you, my listeners, are giving so many wonderful uh, suggestions of people to talk to uh, that uh, it's making my job easier and easier and of course I love bringing these wonderful people to you so uh, until next week this is Carol Bossert from Museum Life thank you for listening thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life please join your host Carol Bossert again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.